Hello, hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 43 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Our guest on this episode is someone who I think embodies the core values of the University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Lisa Robinson is a pediatric nephrologist and senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children. She studies the response of the body's immune system in situations like kidney transplantation. We discuss an exciting new kidney transplantation technique called normothermic ex vivo kidney perfusion, or NEVKP. And you'll hear from one of the surgeons who pioneered the technique, Dr. Marcus Seltzner. In addition to being a clinician scientist, Dr. Robinson is also the University of Toronto's first chief diversity officer. It's a role that's allowed her to gather data on how our university's faculty of medicine is doing with respect to inclusion and diversity, identify areas for improvement, and promote practices and initiatives with the ultimate goal of creating a stronger, more excellent faculty of medicine. We also talked to Anita Bellakrishna, previously a human rights lawyer, now our faculty's diversity strategist. Let us know what you thought about this episode through social media by tagging at Raw Talk Podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. Okay, enough from me. Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Robinson. I wanted to start off a little bit and just as a disclaimer, say that you wear a lot of hats here at U of T. So you're a clinician, you're a pediatric nephrologist, and you're also a senior scientist here at the Research Institute. And then you're also the chief diversity officer, U of T's first chief diversity officer. And I want to talk about maybe both topics, but maybe we'll talk about your research first and start off with kind of your journey to becoming a clinician scientist. Was that something that you always wanted to integrate or how did you kind of decide to pursue a career as a clinician scientist? Sure. And thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk to you today. And I'm happy to talk about all of the things that you mentioned. So my journey to becoming a clinician scientist, you know, I, as I was going through my training, I love science and I've always loved sort of the puzzle and figuring out things aspects of medicine. I love patient care. I really enjoy interacting with patients and families But I think even early on, I realized that I wanted to do more than just patient care and science and research really appealed to me. And so you did your medical school here at U of T. Your residency was at Western University, right? That's right, right, yeah. And then you ended up at Duke. I did. So how did you end up there? Why did you end up there? Mm -hmm. What did you do there? What did you like? Why did you come back? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Well, that's lots of questions. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you're right. So I did my medical school here at the University of Toronto. I did an internship in internal medicine at Toronto General afterwards. And then I did my residency in pediatrics at Western in London. And then I did go down to Duke University in North Carolina to do my pediatric nephrology fellowship training and my scientific training. So I did my clinical training first, and then I did a research training component afterwards. I was part of a program that's called the Pediatric Scientist Development Program, or the PSDP, which is a North American program sponsored by AMSPDEC, which is the Association of Medical School Pediatric Department Chairs, which is really designed, it recognizes the fact that we have a paucity of pediatricians who do research. Which is not something that you would think working in a place like the Sick Sick Kids Kids, Research Institute, because everyone here is, many people are 
clinician scientists and if they're clinician usually they work at sick kids right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i feel like people don't actually know that that's a problem and so maybe absolutely no and that's so true i mean i think sick kids is so different from many other institutions and you're right you wouldn't realize that working at a place like sick kids but overall it is a problem and i think it's becoming more of a problem it's it's well recognized by leaders in pediatrics you know the research environment is a tough environment and it's hard to attract young people to do that kind of work So I was part of the Pediatric Scientist Development Program, which is aimed to take pediatricians and really immerse them in in research so that they get comprehensive research training with the aim that they'll be productive clinician scientists afterwards. So why Duke? Um, Lots of different reasons, I think. I knew at that time, too, I was very interested in nephrology, and I was really interested in transplantation. And, you know, apart from the great clinical training, one of the things that really appealed to me about Duke were the research opportunities that were available, and especially in the field of transplantation. So this was at a time when research in xenotransplantation was very active, adhesion molecules, leukocyte trafficking, and I found that stuff super cool and really interesting, so I just wanted to dive right into that. Xenotransplantation, adhesion molecules, leukocyte trafficking? The research that Dr. Robinson wanted to dive into came about to address a problem that all transplant patients face. If you're receiving an organ, like a kidney, from someone who is not genetically identical to you, then you run the risk of immune rejection, meaning your immune system sees this new organ, realizes it doesn't belong to you, and attacks it. So what do we do? We pump the brakes on the immune system, specifically those cells Dr. Robinson mentioned, leukocytes. And we now have drugs that are pretty good at suppressing rejection, but it comes at a cost. We have an immune system for a reason, to fight infections, repair a body in the event of an injury, and to help us fight cancer. In fact, many cancers are more common in transplant patients. These are the kind of complications Dr. Robinson was seeing in the hospital during her fellowship. So I think for me, when I was early on in my fellowship training, looking after a couple of different patients who had had, you know, very difficult journeys to receiving a transplant. So I looked after one child who was on dialysis from birth, essentially, and then eventually got a kidney transplant. And then another teenager who developed an immune type of kidney disease in their teens and then got a transplant. And both of these patients actually ended up with post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or Mm -hmm. like a cancer afterwards. And as you can imagine, the first line of, of treatment for that is to decrease or stop the immunosuppression, which of course we did um, in the patients. And one of the patients was able to fight the malignancy, but lost their transplant sure, and yeah. so ended up back on dialysis. And the other patient had such an aggressive form of cancer, there was nothing that we were able to do and the patient actually passed away. Ugh. And I just remember thinking at that time, it was just so frustrating because I felt as though the drugs that we use to prevent rejection, it's like, you know, using a sledgehammer to drive in a finishing nail. And I felt like if we really understand in a much more tailored way, what are the pathways that are involved in recruiting leukocytes, you know, the pathways that are involved in promoting rejection, and we could selectively target those, but leave other aspects of the immune system intact to do the things that we want it to do, that would just be much better approach. At Duke, and now at SickKids, Dr. Robinson studies a molecule called fractalkine. Fractalkine is part of a family of proteins called chemokines, and the role of chemokines is to recruit leukocytes, those immune cells, to an area of inflammation or injury, like a newly transplanted kidney. So if we want to stop immune rejection, we may want to turn off fractalkine, but 
there's a problem with that logic. You know, a few years ago, um, started to realize that, you know, we studied, or I'd studied a lot about this one particular chemokine, which is very important in vascular biology and, um, and in inflammation. But it's one of 50-odd chemokines that exist, and chemokines are only one family of molecules that are important in recruiting leukocytes in the context of inflammation. So I started to think, is there a way, instead of trying to target one particular chemokine or, you know, chemokine receptor, where, you know, if you block it, maybe you'll see an effect, but maybe you won't because there's so many other molecules. That and repetitive processes absolutely. that are happening. Sure. Yeah. That's right. And so I started to think about the problem in the opposite way. Instead of trying to block one, is there a way to do, just sort of do what the body normally does and to find a way to inhibit pathologic leukocyte recruitment? the bad aspects, but leave the good aspects of the immune system intact. And so that's one aspect of our research program. So we've now been thinking about neuronal guidance cues. And in particular, we study two proteins, so SLT2 and its receptor, which is roundabout or robo, which are well described in the developmental neuroscience literature and in, in the developmental literature in general. So they are known to act as repellent. So during brain development or kidney development, once cells migrate to where they need to go, these things are elaborated and they prevent further inappropriate migration. But it turns out that they're not just important in development because in the mature organism, um, SLT2, which is the isoform of SLT that we're interested in, it's highly expressed in the normal kidney and the normal heart by normal endothelial cells and blood vessels. And nobody had studied what their role was. Well, I mean, others had studied it, but it was just sort of an emerging field and there was just so much opportunity. And what we're finding is that if you look at the receptor for SLIT. Um, so we study robo-1 in particular, and we see that robo-receptors are expressed on the surface of pretty much every type of cell that migrates that we're interested in. So, so all um, blood cells yeah, in your body, all the blood much. cells that we've studied. So we've looked at neutrophils, and you know it's been shown to be on the surface of T cells. We look at monocytes, macrophages, and even platelets. And, um, and hmm. SLIT can act as an antiplatelet agent, preventing clot formation in fibroblasts. So we found that SLIT can actually bind to robo on the surface of fibroblasts and prevent them from being activated and prevent progressive fibrosis in some models, like mouse models of kidney fibrosis that we study. So is the next step to test drugs that inhibit this pathway? Or is that what you guys are already doing? Or are you just supplying the body with more of this like repellent, yeah. I guess? Yeah, no, good. that's a great question. So obviously as a clinician and a clinician scientist, I'm really interested in harnessing this pathway as a therapeutic mm-hmm. in the context of inflammation, thrombosis, all of these different things, fibrosis. So far we've been working with, so full-length slit is huge, by the way. SLIT2 is huge. And so it's normally cleaved in the body. And there's an N-terminal fragment and a C-terminal fragment. So we actually produce, we can synthesize the N-terminal fragment and purify it. So we've been working with that. And one thing that we've done is we've tried to make smaller and smaller fragments of it to try to determine what is the smallest possible fragment that we need that can mimic the effects of SLIT that's active, that's easier to produce. Right. So how does that work exactly? So if you have like a bigger protein, does that mm-hmm. mean it's harder to deliver it, to the body? Yeah, or? it's harder to purify as well. And okay. even and it's more unstable when we try to produce it. So mm-hmm. yeah, so that's what we're working on. The best part of focusing on this protein slit, it seems to do exactly what Dr. Robinson's been aiming for. Prevent pathological leukocyte recruitment, the bad aspects, but leave the good aspects of the immune system intact. 
In fact, when her lab exposed certain kinds of immune cells, called neutrophils, to slit, they found that these cells actually did a better job of killing certain bacteria than neutrophils not exposed to slit. Her lab is now trying to figure out how exactly this protein works and whether we can use it to treat diseases like atherosclerosis. I know people always ask like, oh, how long will it take to get into the clinic? Or do you think you'll be able to push anything like this into clinical trials in the coming years? I I mean, I certainly hope so. It's hard to predict how long these things will take, but I I certainly hope that that'll be the case. And we're working with a drug company to try to test it in some models of kidney disease. Oh, nice. And going back a little bit to the transplantation aspect, Mm -hmm. you also do work on kidney transplantation and optimizing that process. And that's recently become really exciting, um, really exciting results. And so can we talk a little bit about your work on NEVKP? For sure. That's like super, super exciting. So I have to say that's been one of the most fun things that I've had the opportunity to be involved in over the last few years. So this is a collaborative project with um, Marcus Seltzner, who's this amazing transplant surgeon at UHN. So as you know, the transplant program at UHN has pioneered the use of normothermic ex vivo perfusion of different organs, starting with the lung, to try to... Chef Kashabji. Yeah, exactly. So Chef Kashabji and his group, his team, to try to take organs that were really damaged and to be able to use this system to perfuse them ex vivo to buff them up so that they would now be suitable for transplantation. And they've done some groundbreaking things in the context of lung transplantation. So the perfect organ to try this in is the kidney. And so together with Marcus... Why why is it the perfect organ? Well, because, I mean, just by virtue of the process, whenever you're transplanting an organ, there's always going to be... You have to remove it from the donor, Mm -hmm. and it's got to be transported somewhere and then be transplanted into the recipient. So there's always going to be a period of ischemia and reperfusion injury. And for people who don't know what ischemia and reperfusion is... Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. So what that is, is there's always going to be some period where the ischemia means lack of blood flow and delivery of oxygen and nutrients just Mm -hmm. because there's no blood flow to the kidney or to whatever the organ is. And then the reperfusion is when there's reestablishment of that blood flow. And we know that after that happens, um, that sets in motion a number of molecular cascades that result in inflammation and even some small vessel thrombosis in that organ. And all of that early injury can really, especially if it's severe, can really determine what happens to that organ long term. So what we have done is, um, it's been amazing, actually, and and a lot of this work was pioneered by Moritz Katz, who was a surgical resident who came to us from Germany and worked with us for a few years before going back. And he set up a pig model, which is how a lot of these studies happen, of ischemia and reperfusion injury, where we were able to take pig kidneys and really damage them, so subject them to ischemia reperfusion injury, and then buff them up using this normothermic ex vivo kidney perfusion system, and then make them healthier and make Mm -hmm. them work better once we transplant them um, back into pigs. So what are some of the results that you see once they're transplanted back? What are are the differences? So actually, maybe you can talk a little bit about how transplants are still done, but used to be done. So how do people store organs? How do they reestablish them? What is sort of like the level that you can say, oh, this is a good Mm -hmm. kidney Mm -hmm. that we can transplant back into a child, for Mm -hmm. example? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the caveat is that in children, we're super picky and we... They get the best kidneys. Yeah, exactly. So we only accept kidneys that we think are very, very, very um, healthy. And just because we know, and this is a little known fact, that most kidneys, once they're transplanted, they don't last forever. So, you know, Uh, be be for a variety of immune factors, 
factors and non-immune factors, including the medications that we use for immunosuppression, some of which are nephrotoxic. Kidneys, transplanted kidneys do undergo some fibrosis and scarring over time. And so if a transplanted kidney lasts 15 years, that's pretty good. And that's one thing if you're an older patient, but you know, we transplant toddlers all the time. And so most children who get a kidney transplant, they're going to need another kidney transplant. They may require dialysis in the future. So so anything that we can do to optimize the health and the viability of that, the first of the kidney early on is obviously what we strive for. To lengthen so, the time. Until to lengthen the time that it lasts. Exactly. So strategies that people use now for storing organs are really just on ice. So that's called mm. static cold storage and then sometimes they can be pumped so they can be on a pump um, but at cold temperatures so like hypothermic perfusion but in the clinical realm nobody has really so far combined both of those things so normothermia as well as the perfusion so that's what we're pioneering and the reason being you know in the old days I guess the old literature suggested that if you stored organs in the cold you slow down the metabolism you might actually protect them from further injury but I think newer literature suggests that that's probably not true. Which kind of makes uh, sense because our bodies are not at are not four cold. degrees. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So that's what we've been doing. And then we have, um, so Peter Urbanellis is a PhD student who Marcus and I jointly supervise, who's been doing this amazing work together with Matthias, who was a surgical fellow who's gone back to Hungary now. And they basically created a model which was trying to figure out what's the point of no return. So basically taking pig kidneys and subjecting them to prolonged periods of ischemia and then reperfusion and then transplanting them to see what's like the break point. And what they found is that if we subject the kidneys to about two hours, so 120 minutes of lack of blood flow and oxygen, they're pretty damaged. Mm -hmm. So that's the point of no return when you transplant them back. And so what we're finding is that when we subject these pig kidneys in this model to this um, type of injury, but then once we expose them to the normothermic ex vivo kidney perfusion, we can actually make them healthier and then they do better. And the way that we know they do better, so when we transplant them back into pigs, there's a whole bunch of different parameters that we can measure, but many of them are similar to what we measure in kidney transplant patients. Like in the blood, we measure the creatinine and the urea, which are markers that we look at in our patients to tell us how well they kidneys are working. So if there's higher levels of those, it means it's worse. It's worse. Mm -hmm. So that's been super exciting. And then something which has been super exciting, you were, we were talking earlier about how long it takes to move things to the clinic just before the new year, actually, we were able to do the first transplant in a human patient using this particular system and it worked really well and this was at tgh at tgh yeah that's so exciting isn't that exciting yeah that's super cool really fun hey what's going on listeners it's james and anton here you guys just heard how excited dr robinson is about the new cutting edge normothermic ex vivo kidney perfusion or nevkp technique that has recently been pioneered right here in toronto So we decided to reach out to none other than Dr. Marcus Selsner, transplant surgeon and Dr. Robinson's clinical collaborator, who's been on the forefront of the NEVKP development. Thank you for joining us. So Dr. Selsner, can you walk us through what this procedure is all about and why it is such a game changer for those in need of a kidney? The way we have done organ preservation in the past, and particularly kidney preservation, is we have cooled organs. We have a time gap between retrieving the organ from a donor, transporting it to the recipient hospital, 
preparing it for transplant and then implanting it. So there's a time where the kidney is outside the body for transport, organization and preparation. And in the past, we have cooled down the organ on ice. Mm -hmm. And this is slowing down the dying process of the kidney. If you cool it down, the metabolism is reduced, not stopped. And if you hurry up fast enough, you can implant the kidney before it's become unusable. So it was a question of being very fast, rushing, keeping the kidney on ice, cooling it. What we are doing now is entirely different. We're putting the concept on its head. We're reversing it. Instead of cooling the kidney, we keep it warm, perfused. We give oxygen, nutrition, and other ingredients to keep the kidney happy and alive outside the body. This has several advantages. The kidney gets oxygen all the time. It gets nutrition all the time. It can make metabolism. It makes urine. And it has none of the effects that cooling and being on ice normally would have. Cooling and being on ice is highly unnatural for any organ system. And although it's easy and it works most of the time, it, it is associated with damage. Organs were not meant to be on ice and cold. So while you're on ice, you deteriorate slowly and you become less well. If you're warm, perfused, the kidney is like in the body. The ultimate goal is the kidney should even not know it's out of the body. So it remains healthy and happy, full of energy until the time of transplantation. So there are, I would say, three different things which we achieve with this new technology. First of all, we avoid the negative effects of cooling and having no oxygen. It's like holding your breath normally. So this doesn't occur. Second, since the kidney is metabolic active and it, and it works outside the body, we can test it. It's like a test driving a car. So now we have the opportunity to assess the kidney function outside the body before we implant it into a recipient organ. And the third major advantage is that a kidney that is active and alive and awake and working is susceptible for interventions. We can give drugs or other things to manipulate the kidney and make it even better or to assess it in a different way. So it's open to therapeutic approaches. When the kidney is on ice in a box, nothing you can do about it. If the kidney is warm, perfused, and active, you can actually change it and uh, treat it. As you just mentioned, uh, this method makes the environment of the kidney so much more body-like. What has taken so long for us to start thinking this way? Well, of course, it's not as easy as it sounds. Keeping the body kidney out of the body and making believe it's in the body is actually not that straightforward because the kidney is not stupid. It will realize there's tubing involved. The fluid it gets perfused with is not actually blood. The pump is not the heart. So the kidney has many ways to detect that it gets fooled. So you have to realize what does the kidney need out of the body and what is not necessary. We have no blood to give, um, or we can't give full blood during uh, the ex vivo perfusion, and we also we wouldn't. So we had to first figure out what fluid is required. What is in the blood of human body the kidney needs ex vivo? And what is in the blood which it doesn't need or may be harmful? So we have to actually figure out what is the optimal perfusion fluid. It's like you're making a soup, you know, you can get 19 ingredients right. If the 20th is wrong, the whole thing is spoiled. So you have to give it 100% right. So it took us years of research to figure out what fluid is required outside the body to make the kidney think it's in the body and avoid anything that could be harmful in this regard. Then there was a question of technology. I think we're using nowadays um, centrifugal pumps, which is different from the roller pumps of the past. So the technology has involved with more 
gentle pumping system. The tubing is different. It had to be customized, heparinite coated. So it was part of technology development and then research in the field of having the right fluid environment for the kidney that it keeps it happy and healthy. In speaking with Dr. Robinson, she mentioned that one procedure has already been done at Toronto General Hospital. Are there any more scheduled for the future? And what are the obstacles that need to be overcome in order for NEVKP to be deemed clinically feasible and more widely used in centers that are not as specialized as TGH? So um, for the first question is we have done four cases uh, at this point okay. and we are planning to more. It's a clinical trial. So we're enrolling patients hopefully along the way. And in the beginning, it's a safety trial. Of course, if you have a new thing, you want to compare it to the previous technique. So we are assessing safety, feasibility and outcome in this regard. And it's a clinical research study. So we will complete the study, then analyze our result and plan the next study uh, afterwards. Uh, at this point, of course, uh, the technology is not commercially available, so it's something we created in our lab together with our partners from a perfusionist system here in uh, Toronto. So it's a group working together with uh, nurses, perfusionists, researchers, surgeons, nephrologists coming together to make this happen. This is, I would say, maybe not easily reproduced in other centers who have not the same environment. At some point, I hope that uh, Google or Apple will pick it up and create an automated system that is just plug in and you go. It's not at this case. So I would say technology has to evolve to a commercial um, level at some point, which requires less skills and uh, will be easier um, to handle. But it's like you're building a first computer. The first computer was like a room full of tubes and things, and no one could have used that in his kitchen. Nowadays, we have laptops, and every 12-year-old will have one of those uh, in his room. So I would look at the same perspective. This is development of technology, but it would need to be further developed to be user-friendlier in the future. And we say it needs de-skilling, that in the end, everyone can do it with a plug-and-play system. The other thing is, at the moment, our system is not portable. We need someone uh, to build um, a perfusion system that can be put in a car and can be on the road, can be brought to the uh, donor hospital. So there is, I would say, future technology development required to make it or bring it to the end goal of having the kidneys one perfused all the time. Right. So as with many innovations, I guess there are some costs or shortcomings or complications. Are there any with this procedure? And is that technology aspect the main point that your team is currently working on to refine this technique? Or are there other parts of it as well that need to be further refined? So... um it's a new technology. It's more complicated than what we had in the past. If you right. put a kidney in a camping cooler in a bucket of ice, that's low tech, low cost, not zero cost, but lower cost. So the new technology is a bit more labor intensive and will be also a bit more, a bit more cost intensive in this regard. We believe that the results are so much better that it will be that the cost will be offset by the avoiding of complications and the avoiding of dialysis after transplantation. A large number of our patients do require dialysis after transplantation for a short period of time. We call it delayed graft function. Many kidneys don't work right away, and people have to go under, undergo dialysis for a week or so. Our main goal is to reduce this with new technology. So if we save treatment after transplantation or we simplify treatment after transplantation or reduce hospital stay but it will be a huge cost saver actually and the savings uh, for the healthcare system will be tremendous 
if it works as we expect, it will it will work. So we have more costs initially with the organ preservation, but we save probably multiple times more if we avoid problems after transplantation. Yeah, and yeah. the second <coughs> point is, uh, where do we go with this? Of course, it is like a growing organism. It's never finished. I mean, there are many aspects of this which needs to be refined. If you ask me, is our perfusion solution the final product? Probably not. I think there are many things we can further improve. And uh, it's like you're having a car in the 70s. You could say that looks really good compared to a car in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's not like the car in the 90s or to today. I think it's not finished. It will improve. We will further have ideas to what to add to the solution. The technology is self-made at this point. So it needs refinement, professional design. And, and do you know what that will look like at this point or not yet? No, I, I can't tell you. I hope it will look like an iMac or so in the future, <laughs> something which I control with my cell phone. and Or through an app. App, <laughs> maybe like a drone flying yeah, in the air. Oh, yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it looks in the future like something slick and slim and right. little electrodes right. blinking uh, somewhere. You have mm-hmm. your iPad app to control it or so. Uh-huh. So we're not at this point, but I would say it hopefully will go in this direction. I see. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Selsner, for sitting down with us and sharing your insight on these exciting developments in kidney transplantation. So maybe now we'll switch gears to one of the other hats that you wear, which is your role as Chief Diversity Officer at U of T. So this is not quite brand new role. You've been there for around two years now, but pretty new to U of T. Can you talk a little bit about how it came about? Oops. Yeah. So as you said, this role started in January 2016, and it was the first role like this for any medical school in Canada. As you probably know, in the U.S., there are many institutions, medical schools and hospitals that have this type of a role in place. The reason it came about is because I think there was a growing recognition that any faculty of medicine, and when I talk about the faculty of medicine, I mean everybody in the faculty of medicine, so the medical students, all of the clinical trainees, so the residents, the fellows, the professional staff, the faculty, and very importantly, everybody in the scientific spaces, including grad students, postdocs, mm-hmm. et cetera, we really should reflect the community that we're in. And I think there was a growing recognition that that's absolutely not true in our faculty of medicine, and that's pretty much the same, I think, in most faculties of medicine across Canada. And especially in a city of Toronto, which is so diverse and so multicultural, There was a real recognition that there was definitely some disparities in terms of who is here within our spaces and who's in the broader community. And what we really wanted to do is to try to understand why that is, what some of those barriers are, and try to help break down some of those barriers. Mm-hmm. So the office currently consists of two of you, I think? Abs- yes. And so the best thing we were able to do was to hire Anita Balakrishna, whom I know you've met. Yeah. Anita's the diversity strategist for the Faculty of Medicine, and she's phenomenal just in background. So Anita is actually a lawyer. She's a human rights lawyer, and she's practiced and worked in many different spaces, including in the community. So yeah, so the office currently consists of Anita. We have administrative support from Stephen Geigen Miller and then me. But we work with so many different amazing partners from across the Faculty of Medicine and across the university. So what were kind of your first steps getting started? I know your first year really was to look at where U of T stood and take stock mm-hmm. of how we're doing, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and so what were some of the initiatives that you spearheaded and projects and what have you found so far? Mm-hmm. Well, the first year was really about trying to understand what work is going on because there are many people within our faculty of medicine community who are doing work. 
really important work um, in different areas um, related to inclusion, diversity, equity. So trying to make those connections and establish the partnerships um, so that we can all work together and learn from one another. And then you don't have to actually reinvent the wheel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so much expertise around here. So one of the first things that we did was establish a diversity advisory council, which includes members from across the Faculty of Medicine and across the university with expertise in, in many different areas related to equity, diversity, inclusion. And we just met actually a couple of days ago and we share strategies. We have subcommittees that work on various aspects. It's been amazing because we help one another. One of the things that I really focused on in the last couple of years is data. And I think that's partly because I'm a clinician scientist, but I think it's incredibly important that we have data, not only about who is here within our spaces, but about the experience of different people in our spaces so that we can try to figure out what the barriers are and try to come up with solutions that are rational, that make sense. And then we can evaluate what the effectiveness of those particular strategies are. The person who's really behind all of these initiatives is Glennis Babcock, who has been spearheading these projects through the PGME or the post-MD office together Mm. with Mariella Rattelow and Caroline Abrahams. But Glennis has focused on designing surveys. And so initially we had surveys for the medical students and for the residents. So Glennis redesigned all of the surveys to really ask a lot of very detailed demographic questions about who's here, about all aspects of, of diversity. And not only that, we've also changed the questions so that we can ask about experiences of discrimination, harassment, and very importantly, that sense of belonging and that feeling of exclusion from informal networks. And the vast majority of the respondents to the surveys have given us permission to track them and to follow them along. But importantly, what we're able to do then is we can do a very detailed look and see who is experiencing what, and are there some groups who are more marginalized than others, so that we can really try to understand what some of the issues and the barriers are. So as I said, we focused on the medical students and the residents early on. But our plan is that we will be serving everybody who is within the Faculty of Medicine, all the groups that I mentioned to you early on. Including the grad students. Including the grad students, especially the grad students whom I worry about all the time. But I think in May we closed the surveys. So we just completed the surveys for the staff and for the faculty. And then the plan will be probably um, next spring that we'll be serving the graduate students and everybody else, the postdocs and others. And so what were some of the main findings that came out of the initial data? Yeah, I mean, some of the the main findings that came out are that discrimination and harassment is alive and well. And it seems to be some groups that seem to be more marginalized than others. And and it falls out very much along racial lines and along religious lines. And depending on the parameters that we're looking at, and sometimes for, you know, women with children as well. Hmm. So it seems like there are definite patterns there. And it also seems as though Uh, depending on what we're looking at, it's not a random occurrence. It's actually a targeted thing sometimes as well. And so, for example, when we were trying to understand experiences of discrimination and harassment, especially for residents, yes, you know, patients and families are, are responsible for quite a bit of it. 
but faculty physicians are responsible for quite a bit of it as well and others within the healthcare setting. So I think that's the kind of information that we need um, so that we can raise awareness around these issues and really talk more openly about the concept of allyship too. So that's another focus that we've had and a lot of that work has been done with the guidance of the amazing team at Mount Sinai, so especially Marilyn Caney. I mean, the concept of allyship is that we can all be there to support one another um, and to speak up for one another. And even though you may not personally be experiencing something, discrimination, harassment, if you see something, even though you're not necessarily the victim, I hate that word victim, but you see it happening to others around there, you can be an ally for those people. So you can be an ally for them by connecting with them and standing in solidarity with them, or you can speak up depending on what the situation is to be there for them. So that's been a big focus. And and I know we did a a workshop for students in IMS not long ago, which I hope was helpful, but it's an important concept. Yeah, and you've done a couple of these workshops mm-hmm. at this point over the last couple of years or so for, mm-hmm. for different groups, right? For different yeah. groups. And I think these are, you know, again, I, I think we can all benefit from this. And it's really important to talk about these ideas in different spaces, especially in spaces where these are things that are not traditionally talked about. You guys just heard Dr. Robinson mention her collaboration with Anita Balakrishna, a human rights lawyer who now sits on the Diversity Advisory Council for the Faculty of Medicine. We're lucky enough to have Anita here with us today on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Now, as you know, this podcast is focused primarily on biomedical research, Mm -hmm. and it's not at all common for us to have guests who have a background in law on the show. I'm not sure if that contributed, but could you share with us a bit of your experiences that led you to pursue your role here as a diversity strategist at the Faculty of Medicine? Sure, Um, so I went to law school about 18 years ago. That time I realized that the kind of work I wanted to do in the world had to do with social justice. So I was always interested in areas of law that would somehow further human rights. And that's what I pursued in my training. I ended up practicing human rights law for several years, mainly working with people from marginalized communities. So low income uh, people, newcomers, uh, people with disabilities. Within Canada? Within Canada, Canada? yeah. And so what I discovered in doing that work was that a lot of the times the types of issues that were coming up were in workplaces, in organizations that had a culture that really perpetuated an environment of discrimination, harassment, and overall inequity. So as I, you know, continued practicing and being involved in litigation, I realized that what I wanted to do more of was proactive work. So not just that reactive work when a conflict happens or a problem happens, but what can I proactively do with the kind of education and knowledge that I have to try and prevent these things from happening in the future. So what exactly do you mean by proactive work? Can you give us an example? Yeah, so proactive work can mean anything from education and training for individuals and organizations to programs to kind of message and create awareness about diversity throughout an organization, having proper policies in place in an organization so that when complaints come forward, they're handled appropriately and people feel safe when they're going through a complaints process. Mm -hmm. So all those types of proactive measures really help when a conflict actually occurs. 
So now at the University of Toronto, can you give us a little bit more context of what your role as a diversity strategist entails? Sure. So my position is a new one here at the Faculty of Medicine. So I'm the first person in the role. Dr. Lisa Robinson is the first chief diversity officer in the Faculty of Medicine. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of inventing this and discovering as we go along mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of, you know, we've been given a particular mandate, which is mm-hmm. to further the Faculty of Medicine's initiatives and programs and policies on equity. But that's a very broad mandate. So what are some current projects that you're working on? Uh, So what we're working on, and I'll have to say at the beginning that a lot of what we have been doing in the Faculty of Medicine around equity has been quite centered on the MD program. So we know the Faculty of Medicine is huge. It includes so many different departments and areas and so many disciplines. But the medical school is an accredited program. So we report to a regulatory body that says you must have certain things in place to continue being an accredited medical school. And one of the big priorities for them has been diversity and equity. So I think the medical school has many more ingrained programs on diversity than the Faculty of Medicine as a whole. And what Lisa and I are trying to do is expand on these so that they're not just available in the MD program, but throughout the faculty. So I just want to say Mm -hmm. that at the outset, because some of the programs I mentioned have just been specific to the MD program. So we've had something called a diversity mentorship program for first and second year medical students, matching medical students coming in from underrepresented groups in medicine. So indigenous students, black students, students who are the first in their family to go to university, Uh, racialized students who identify as having barriers in terms of what they experienced in school and to get into medical school, students who identify as economically disadvantaged Mm -hmm. and are seeking some type of guidance about what kinds of networks they need to be aware of in medical school. Because as you all probably know, it's a very hierarchical and power-driven institution, and it's very hard for people who are not on the inside to actually pursue the opportunities they'd like. So the mentorship program matches these students with physician faculty members who identify from similar groups, and they can kind of, you know, guide the students through things they might have gone through and introduce them to other mentors who can help them pursue their opportunities. Right. Now, you you mentioned one of the goals is trying to broaden the horizons of your work past just the MD program. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that's to some of the graduate programs as well. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I have never experienced this, but what would discrimination or harassment or inequity look like in the realm of academia, Mm -hmm. perhaps versus other settings that we, we know about? Right. Well, it could come up in many different ways. I'll kind of speak from the most subtle to the most egregious. So are you familiar with the term microaggressions? Now, could you please explain that to us? So microaggressions are what seem to be very subversive and insidious comments, conduct that people can make towards marginalized groups because of stereotypes or assumptions they might have about them. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a lot of black communities talk about being profiled without doing anything to bring on that attention. Uh, They talk about people who lock their doors when they walk past their cars, etc. That would be interpreted as a microaggression Mm -hmm. that day to day can have a really enormous impact on someone if they keep getting treated differently because of perceptions about who they are. So this happens to our students, to our staff, to our faculty as well, who identify from particular groups. And so microaggressions can happen through a comment or like I said, conduct uh, in the classroom. It could happen in the lab. It could happen in a workplace setting. It could happen between peers. It could happen 
between administrative staff and students. It could happen by faculty. Uh, so we're trying to educate people on strategies to respond when microaggressions happen. So when someone acts that way or says something that makes us feel belittled somehow, how do we respond to that? Especially where there's a power dynamic. Because I think especially in the sciences and the academia setting, there's often relationships that are quite, again, hierarchical, right. where a graduate student is, is paired with a supervisor who has a lot of power over that student. And if it's a supervisor who's engaging in discriminatory or harassing or microaggressive behavior, uh, the student should know what their options are to actually respond to that or complain to it so that they don't have any negative repercussions. So that's a really big theme that we've noticed come out. So if someone, for instance, in graduate school like myself is experiencing, whether it's discrimination, prejudice, some sort of harassment, mm -hmm. and they are unsure of how to deal with it or how to address it, what would you recommend? What sort of steps should they take or what kind of resources can they reach out to? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I think most of the time, the student who's experiencing doesn't feel safe to go directly to their supervisor, obviously to the person who's doing it. Right. Um, it feels very unsafe to go to that person. There is the option to come to Lisa and myself as uh, members in the diversity office to talk to about strategies to actually respond and deal with it. There's also the graduate student office, right? Which uh, there's a graduate affairs officer there who often works with students to get through things and advises them of particular processes in particular departments. Because as you know, like each department sometimes has its own way of dealing with things, depending on who the chair is in that department and what their protocols are. So I think the department chair is a great resource that students can go to. Right, okay. Is there anything else about the work that you do that you'd like to speak about that you think the listeners might be interested in? Yeah, I can say that the Faculty of Medicine has prioritized equity and diversity as one of its core values going forward. And there's some interesting things happening around how to integrate this stuff into curriculum. So one of the conversations that we were having with some graduate students the other day was, um, how do we make sure that just like there has to be a mandatory ethics overview at the beginning of getting into graduate school, how could we incorporate some type of a diversity or equity overview mm -hmm. so that people are aware of these issues in a more practical way? Uh, so those kinds of initiatives are really interesting to get involved with. Mm -hmm. And so I'd encourage anybody out there who's interested to think about what are the systemic things we can do to change things when we notice something's not working. And what has been done already? I think right now it's just conversations okay. <laughs> and just identifying it as a possibility. Okay. I think that's where we mm -hmm. start. And then we talk about how do we make that happen? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the different checks and balances we have to go through to incorporate a big systemic change like that? The other thing I'd like to say is when we talk about diversity and equity, we can't forget the importance of acknowledging the indigenous communities that we have mm -hmm. uh, within our programs and how different it is for us to respond to those needs um, in terms of underrepresentation in all our programs, as well as the kind of the way we have been operating in a very colonial way within our institutions. And the Truth and Reconciliation Report 
calls to action have asked that healthcare, and that includes all research, healthcare services, uh, be more aware of indigenous communities and their health disparities, and that that needs to feed its way into the research and the the work that we do, mm-hmm. including understanding how indigenous knowledges can help us do the things that we want to do. So I'd encourage people to become familiar with that report if they haven't already. And the U of T has issued its own recommendations on that report. So I think it'd be really great for people to check it out. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure talking to you, Anita. Now back to you, Mel. So it's it's a good thing that U of T's, the Faculty of Medicine, has kind of emphasized that this is important and we should be paying attention to this. Can we talk a little bit about pushback that you've gotten surrounding mm-hmm. it or is everybody on your side or uh, like have... <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only. Uh, no. Really importantly, um, the leadership of the Faculty of Medicine is really on board and I feel so fortunate that I get to work with an incredible dean, that's Trevor Young, who really thinks that this is important and that's known. I think he makes that so known to everybody that he connects with. The senior leadership team is likewise is very supportive so that's really important I think that's really empowered a lot of the work that we're doing some of the work that we've been doing is around um, medical school admissions and trying to break down some of the barriers that prevent some people from applying to medical school and feeling like medicine is a career option for them and so we've certainly had pushback from some people who it's the traditional concern that many people express that they feel that when you talk about enhancing diversity, that that has to, of course, come at the expense of excellence. But I always turn that around because we know that that's absolutely not true. And we know that diversity fuels excellence. And if we really want to be excellent, and that's what we pride ourselves on at U of T, not only in patient care, but with respect to innovation, research, you know, education, all of these things, then we need to have diverse people here doing that work. We need people who come with very different lived experience, different ways of thinking about the same problem so that we come up with way better solutions than we could have otherwise. And their lived experience is often what allows them to connect with patients in, in a absolutely. better or different way. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I mean, there's a lot, absolutely. And, and there's so much literature around that. We know that in the city, our population is diverse. So our patient body is diverse. And it only makes sense that our healthcare practitioners reflect that diversity. In order to have a healthcare team that reflects the diversity of Toronto, Dr. Robinson and others in the Faculty of Medicine, including Ike Okafor, have built several initiatives surrounding medical school applications. We know that applications and the medical school admissions test pose a significant financial barrier to students who don't have the financial means of taking preparatory test courses or who may not have friends or family to guide them in the admissions process. Students who are part of the community of support and who demonstrate financial need can enroll in a free MCAT prep course the tutors of which are current medical students. UFT Medicine also instituted the Indigenous Student Application Program, or ISAP, and now this year, the Black Student Application Program, BSAP, to encourage these two underrepresented groups to seriously consider careers in medicine. Importantly, when we look at these programs, we on purpose kept all of the academic criteria exactly the same. So the MCAT scores, the GPA scores that were needed to apply are exactly the same as everybody else. 
The only thing that we did differently is that the students, just like for the MD-PhD students, they write an additional short essay talking about why they're applying through this pathway. And the only other things that we did is that we have ensured that there's at least some members of the Black community or the Indigenous community who are part of the file review and the interview process. Before we launched the Black Student Application Program, we did a lot of consultation in the community to try to understand, does this make sense, and how should we structure something like this? And as a result of that, I think there was much more community engagement. Um, And so we had many more members of not just the black community, but the community in general, who decided that they wanted to be part of these admissions processes and who signed up to be file reviewers and interviewers. And that's what we want, because we want our file reviewers and our interviewers to reflect our population. So I can't tell you the details, but we're very excited. So we know that just by doing that, and don't forget, you know, we haven't really changed anything, but it looks as though we have a number of students who have applied through the Black Student Application Program who are going to be entering our first year class this year. So we're pretty excited about that. So the goal of this, and this is something that I know you wanted to emphasize, is that it's not a different application process. It's just one additional essay. And then again, the incorporation of individuals who reflect the diversity of the community on the actual file review panels and the interview process. So part of the problem was just to get these individuals to apply to the program. Did you see an increase in applicants? Well, it's hard to answer that question because we haven't systematically, we don't really know who was applying to our medical schools. And because in Canada, as you know, we don't ask a lot of questions about that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. we don't really know who our applicants were. But what we did see is that we did have a number of applicants who we think maybe weren't applying before. And I will say that the other thing which I think has been really important is the community of support, which was started by Ike Okafor again in uh, March of 2015. And this is a mentorship program for underrepresented minority undergraduate students who are interested in careers in medicine. So this is for Indigenous students, Black students, economically disadvantaged students, and now Filipino students. And it's basically a way of just finding mentors for these students who are interested in applying to medicine. So medical student mentors, physician mentors, giving them opportunities to participate in research or public health work practice interviews, you know, advice around how do you write a personal statement. A lot of the things that many medical student applicants, our current medical students, when they were applicants, they had that because they might have family members or others um, who might be able to advise them about this. But many of these applicants don't have that. So that's all it really was. And can Um, anybody apply to be a mentor uh, as part of the program? Yes, absolutely. And so we're really excited about that. And so, you know, again, if you think about black students as one example, if you were going to have all the, and, and so just for reference for you, the community of support started off as just a local program with a handful of students. So now there are chapters across the country, universities across the country, and there are about a thousand students who belong to this. And so, you know, especially in a space where our medical students and others are underrepresented, it would be really hard to have all of those people who are already underrepresented be a mentor. All of these students. <laughs> so, but, you know, what we realize is that you don't have to be black to mentor a black undergraduate student interested in medicine, Mm -hmm. just as one example. So we have many medical students and others who have signed up to be mentors, and it's been incredible. So how else can students or faculty or residents or medical students get involved? Or grad students. Or grad students, yes, Mm -hmm. uh, get involved with you guys or any of the 
initiatives that you guys are a part of. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of opportunities to do that. And a lot of it is about what we were just talking about. So about pathway programs. And so, you know, pathway programs that we have where we expose high school students and undergraduate students to these kinds of careers in biomedical research or public health research or medicine. And all of those students need sometimes as a mentor or a connection. And so graduate students and others who want to volunteer their time, just let us know and we'd be happy to connect you with students. Because sometimes those students don't know anybody who works in those spaces. They've never had role models that do those kinds of things. And if you don't see it, you don't ever believe that you can be it. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about your science and your role as chief diversity officer. What do you think is the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, I don't think I can pick one. I love all of it. And I know that sounds really cheesy, but it's totally true. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely love about my job is that I get to be involved in so many different things. I love patient care. I love being able to do patient care in the context of research. I love science. And I love the work that I'm able to participate in at the university. There's a lot more that we need to do, but it's really rewarding getting to do all of these different things. So it's not all doom and gloom. No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, especially with respect to what we've been talking about with respect to diversity and inclusion, the first step is really talking about it. And in the past, I think we may have known that there are some challenges and issues, but we never really talked openly about it. And one thing that I find is happening now, and that's in part, you know, with the help of the amazing medicine communications team that we have. And I'm going to shout out to Liam Mitchell in particular. Yes, yeah. But I think now we talk about it openly and rather than hide behind the stuff that we know and we hope that nobody ever finds out about, we acknowledge that these are challenges and that in 2018, we need to do better and we talk about it and we invite people to help us figure out how to do better. I think I could talk to you all day about this, but uh, I think that's a perfect place to end off. So thank you for joining me. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Including the grad students. Including the grad students, especially the grad students, whom I worry about all the time.